Do you want to live a sanctified life? That is, do you want to be a vessel where the power of God, the anointing of the Holy Spirit is clearly seen in you and through you? That you become an individual that has a godly influence on others? And that you are able to submit to God and be a blessing in the lives of others? Now, it's easy to say, yes, I do. The question is, that's not enough. So what is it that we must do if those things are going to become a reality in our life? Well, that's what Peter is going to share with us beginning in chapter 2. So take out your Bible and look there with me, 1 Peter in chapter 2. And notice what he says. The first word of the text is the term, therefore. And it means, based upon what Peter has said, that wonderful inheritance, that hope, that living hope that we as believers have, all of those promises that God is going to do in our life, all of those things, based upon that, he says, because of that, therefore, he says, set aside, and there's a very important word, all. Not just some, but all. All, and the literal word is evilness. It may be translated in a variety of ways, but it's just the basic Greek word for that which is evil. And we need to understand the biblical concept of evil. It simply means anything that is opposed to God's will. Something that's not part of his plan. Something that we may want, we may desire, but God says it is not right for you. It is not going to be a blessing. It is not going to grow you, change you. It is not part of my plan for you. So he says, therefore, setting aside all evilness and all deception. Now, we see a relationship between those two things. There's actually, in this first verse, five things that he speaks of. But in a unique way, he ties, grammatically, the first and the second together. And here's what Peter is saying. Whenever I pursue that which is not God's will, there is going to be deceit in my life. I'm either going to be speaking it, or... I'm going to be deceived. Anything that is apart from God's plan involves deceit. And we see that going all the way back to Genesis and chapter 3 in the garden. Deceit is the number one tool that the enemy uses. And there's only one solution against deceit. And that is, and you're right, it is truth. That's why it's so important that we understand the Word of God. The Word, it is truth. And unless we conform to the truth of Scripture, we're not going to be sanctified. God's anointing is not going to be upon us. His power is not going to be released. In other words, we're not going to be faithful to Him. So it comes from a decision. Are we really going to do what He says here by setting aside all evilness? And all deceit. Then the next word, there's a change. 
because the first two are in the singular. But now we see a change to the plural when he speaks about hypocrisy. So it's hypocrisies. That is something that is not matching our profession. We also see that hypocrisy is also based in a lie, our lie. We say this is who we are, but we don't behave to that profession. So he says as well, hypocrisy, and there's another problem, and this is also where the enemy plans to attack, and that is when we have a wrong perspective, when we have envy. Now, that is a desire for that which is in conflict with God's will. When we desire something that God says, no. Now, we know that Messiah, for most of his childhood and early adult life, he lived in a town called Nazareth. And we always must pay attention to the words. And that term, Nazareth, in the Hebrew language, and it's a name based in Hebrew, not Greek. And it means to deny. It means to say no. And we need to be people that learn how to say no to the temptation to the things of this world. Envy is when we say, I want what I ought not have. And God, he gives us free will, but we also see that submissiveness is when we set our free will aside and we agree with God. And therefore, this is in conflict with that when it says all envies and all evil speaking. Now, evil speech, it's the opposite of who we are. We're called to proclaim truth, to proclaim blessing. We're called to have a speech. And there's a correlation here. Because what I say initiates in my mind. So there's a relationship between speech and thoughts. And again, he uses that same word for evil. That which is not according to what God desires. So where does that change begin? I want that change. I understand how that change is going to manifest itself out in my behavior. But what brings it about? Well, look at the next verse, verse 2. He says, as newborn babes, he says that you desire, and the first word here is the word for word. Now, some will translate it reasonable or rational or logical, but it's just basically the word that speaks to God's plan. We mentioned last night that there's two Greek words for that concept of word. One speaks of that which is related to the plan of God. I think of it as a blueprint. God has a blueprint in regard to his purpose, his will, his plan. And then the second word is this proclamation that brings about the reality of God's purposes. Well, here it's saying, using that concept that speaks about God's purpose, his plan. And if we're going to see that become a reality, he says, you desire the word, and then he identifies and, and describes that word to us 
as pure milk. Milk that is of the variety that has nothing in it that is harmful. Whenever we take something into our thoughts, through our eyes, through our ears, whatever, that is not pure, it is going to have an adverse effect upon us spiritually. That's why, and the scripture speaks of this so much in Proverbs, prophetically, he says, guard yourselves. And I think that's one of the great violations that we, we make, is that, that we're not guarding ourselves against the attacks of the enemy, that we're not sensitive to those things. We're too casual concerning the attacks of the enemy. We need to guard ourselves because it's only when we desire and receive that pure milk in order that by it, that's what it says, by it that we can grow. And that word grows in the passive meaning this, it's only because of this milk that we will grow spiritually. We know the milk, that word, and that's why the foundation of what love Israel is about is the word of God. Because without a foundation based upon truth, nothing else holds together. When we don't know the truth, the enemy will easily be able to turn and move us aside. And when we're outside of God's will, we are going to be absent of his power. And when we're absent of his power, we will be defeated. And the outcome of being defeated is shame rather than glory. So it goes against what we're called to be about that we learn in Genesis chapter 1 when we're called to reflect the image of God, his character. Look now at the second part of uh, verse 3 where it says, If therefore you have tasted that the Lord he is, and it's not the normal word for good, but it's derived from this concept of kind. Now, some would say that it relates to a Hebrew concept that speaks about the kindness of the Lord. And God's kindness has a purpose attached to it. God deals with us kindly in order that we change and that we are committed to his will, his purpose, his desires for us. So we receive kindness from God if we tasted that, if we experienced that. The outcome of that, the evidence of that, is that we're going to want to serve God. And this kindness is attractive. It's what God's character, his nature, draws us to him. That's why theology is so important. When we understand the nature of God, the character of God, how God behaves, what's important to God, we are drawn towards him. There's nothing in this world like God. In fact, this world in its natural state now because it's stained with sin, the things of this world is in opposition to God. So it says in verse 3, having tasted the kindness of the Lord, it speaks about here how we are going to be drawn to him. And notice how Messiah is spoken of. As a living stone. Now, when we hear the term stone, 
in regard to Messiah, we know how David spoke about the rock of our salvation. That he as a rock is the foundation of our life. We see that Moses, when he came to a point in his life when he was confused, God placed him upon that rock. He stood him upon that foundation. But we also see another aspect. See, this term for rock, when we look at it back in the prophets, we see that, for example, in Daniel, there was that image that was set up, that image of all evil empires that were in opposition to the purposes of God. And we see that image set up and out of heaven was hurled a stone. Now, there's no disagreement. Everyone understands that this stone is indeed Messiah. And this stone brought about destruction. Hear this carefully. There are things in your life, and I know this is true because there's things in my life that Messiah wants to destroy. You'll never grow, you'll never mature, you will not walk in the anointing until you understand that there's things in your life that what God wants to do, first and foremost, is to destroy those things that are contrary to his call upon your life. That call of holiness, righteousness, until those things are destroyed, and Messiah, he is that vessel of destruction. And that's why it's so important that we hear from time to time messages that's not always encouraging, but also convicting. You know, it's not by accident. When, when David was, was desiring a place in order to put that tabernacle to build God a permanent house, it wasn't by chance that what was selected was a threshing floor. Now, a flushing floor is for the purpose of separation. It is a place of worship, and what worship does, when we understand it rightly, we come before God and we see this holy, righteous, glorious God. We come to know His attributes, His personality, His qualities. And in doing that, we reflect upon ourselves what needs to be separated that we need to get rid of, that we need to understand that are contrary to him. And therefore, we want that ministry of destruction. And it's only when this destruction happens, these things that are contrary to God's purposes, then, and only then, is he going to minister. Notice it says, not just a stone, but a living stone. It is after that destruction that he ministers life. Now, again, we're not talking about just salvation. We're talking about a lifestyle. I am saved freely by God's grace so that I can live differently. That's what sanctification is about. This is what he's speaking to. So a living stone, and then we see something. Humanity, it says, by humanity being rejected. Man and man alone, when we see the glory of God left to ourselves without God's revelation, we reject it. But, look in the middle of verse 4. But from God, from God's perspective, this stone, he is chosen and he is precious. 
And those, now he's speaking to not all of humanity, but we're going to see a remnant. What an important concept in the Bible, that remnant. Those who hear from God and they come out. They make a change, a godly change in their life. So from God's perspective, this one, he is chosen, he is holy. And those that have a connection with that living stone, they become like him. That's why in the previous verse, that living stone is singular. But now in this verse, it's plural. It tells us that we become like him and we become committed to his purpose, his will. And that brings about, when we are like him, it brings about God's ministry in our life. God wants to minister to you, and notice what he's going to do, that you be built up as a spiritual house, that can be the same word for temple, a spiritual house, he says a royal priesthood or a holy priesthood, for what purpose? What are we about? To offer spiritual sacrifices. And if your Bible says acceptable, bad translation. Well-pleasing to God. And the only way, hear this, the only way that you can offer up well-pleasing sacrifices to God is through Messiah Yeshua. If you are not a believer in Him, if you are not part of His congregation of redeemed and His Spirit dwelling and moving in you, you cannot worship God. It's just an impossibility. You have to experience redemption in order to worship, and He and He alone is a Redeemer. Now, Peter's been speaking, obviously, under the inspiration of the Spirit, all truth, but he wants to document that. Look at verse 6. He says, based upon all that I said, therefore, all of this, he says, is also contained in the Scripture. And he goes to Isaiah's prophecy, and he quotes, Behold, I set, this is God, I set in Zion, another kingdom word. Anytime the word Zion, Zion, appears in the Scripture, it should cause us to think about the kingdom. So he says, I set in Zion a stone. Now, it's the foundation. He is the foundation of the kingdom, what the kingdom of God is built upon. But remember, for Zion to come about, it involves destruction. That is that judgment that, that Peter has referenced many times. Judgment, what did we learn last night? Judgment, God's judgment, brings about his order. That's why in the book of Revelation, when the angels in heaven, when they see God's righteous judgment, they praise him. Because God's righteous judgment brings about a kingdom reality. Not just a hope, not just a distant promise, but God's judgment makes it a reality. And this stone, he is going to come to Zion. Zion is Jerusalem, but not the Jerusalem in its current state, same place, but in its redemptive state. So he says, I set in Zion a stone, 
a, a chief stone, once again, chosen, and he uses a different word for precious. And then there's a response. This setting in Zion is something that, that is offered to us. And we have to do, make a decision, what are we going to do? And it says in, in this scripture, verse 7, and based upon this, and the one who believes upon him. Not in him, although that's true, but it's the word upon him, meaning this, that we stand upon that stone. I believe that it's an image to Moses in Exodus chapter 33, where God places him upon that stone so he can see a foretaste of God's glory. And what's proclaimed to him? These many verses, 13 attributes of God. Why 13? 13 is a great number in the Bible. It speaks about Israel, the 12 tribes, and one who's one, God. 13 speaks about unity between God's people and God. And it's only through God's grace, his mercy, his long-suffering, that's what Moses had revealed to him, these 13 attributes of God that's rooted in God's character to forgive. So the one believing upon him, here's what I like. No, no, that's what it says. Now, we translate it never. But literally, he uses two different Greek words. No, no, we understand it. They shall never be ashamed. Now, what are we talking about? What's the context? Judgment. What a marvelous hope. It's a promise that we have. When it comes to judgment day, because we have believed in him, we are not going to experience any shame. What does that give us? We mentioned it last night. It gives us assurance. It tells us to be confident that we belong to him and nothing can change that. Why? Because we are secured not in our works but we are secured in the sufficiency of the cross. Now, after lunch, we're going to be in chapter 3. And I'll repeat it then, but just as an introduction, there's a word in the text. It's usually translated once and for all. So it's a one-time event. Why? Because it's all-sufficient. It does not lack anything. It completes the job perfectly, and it gives us confidence and assurance. That's what he's speaking about here. That the one who believes in him shall never, ever be ashamed. Therefore, to you, to those who are believing ones, he says, to you, there's not going to be shame, but what does he promise us? Honor. Think of that. We are going to stand before the living God and we are going to be honorable in his presence. Is that not amazing? You and me that have blown it so frequently, we are going to be in God's presence, the holy God. 
And what God is going to see, all because of the sufficiency of the cross, he's going to see us in that honorable condition. Now, if that doesn't humble you, see, here's what I want you to see. God's assurance that he gives to us does not lead us to exploit God's grace and use God's grace as a liberty to disobey him. That's not the heart of a believer. God's perfect assurance, his abundant mercy, produces in a real believer humility and a desire to obey him. True repentance is turning away from sin with a desire to never go back. Do we sometimes fall? Yes. We become weak. We have rebelliousness. We're still in this body. But it's not our character any longer. And when we fail God, and we all do, we don't rejoice. It causes grief within us. It brings us quickly to repentance. So the message here is therefore to you, not to all humanity, but to the ones who are believing, honor. But look at the next part of verse 7. But, meaning in contrast to. It's a different conjunction. But to the disobedient ones. Now we have a difference. Now I'm using a Greek text called the Texas Receptus. If you're using a modern translation, it will have, instead of disobedient, it will have believers, not believing. Now, there was just two major traditions among the manuscripts. But when we look at what Peter is saying, there's been an emphasis consistently in Peter's message to us through this epistle about obedience. Now, there's an inherent relationship. When I truly believe, I will obey. When I'm not believing, it manifests, that lack of faith manifests itself in disobedience. And the Texas Receptus, it says, but to the ones who are disobedient, this stone, this one whom they reject, the builders have rejected. Now, in the Greek, just the word to reject, to say no to. But when you look at it in the original, it's a quotation from the Psalms. And it uses a term that is best understood as loathing something, to be repulsed by it, to see something in strongly, not want any connection to it. Now, why these two extremes? Because that's the reality. You are either going to be all in when it comes to Messiah or the exact opposite. There is no position in between. You either love him or hate him. And if you think, well, you can just be indifferent, you have been deceived by the enemy. The enemy is not casual about his loathing and his disobedience to the things of God. But those who truly believe, they are going to manifest that commitment.
Because who is he? Well, this one that the builders, the leadership of Israel in the past in its original context, this one that they have loathed, this one has become the headstone. Again, not just the foundation, but that stone that holds everything together. Now, this goes along with another concept that not Peter, but Paul speaks of in Colossians chapter 1. See, if you are a scientist, if you're really a scientist, you have a lot of faith, just a misplaced faith. And the reason why I say that is this. There are a lot of assumptions that scientists have to make. One of this is that the world is holed together by some invisible, unknown force. They never ask who it is. But when you look at Colossians chapter 1, it says that Messiah, he created all things, and all things are held together by him. See, scientists have no explanation why things are held together. Why the, the neutrons and protons, and why they just don't go their own direction. Something is holding them. They just assume this is this unexplainable force. No, the Bible explains it. It's Messiah. He created and he maintains, he holds everything together. He is that head stone. Look at verse 8. And the ones who disbelieve, the ones who are committed to disobedience, this stone is a stone of stumbling. It's a rock of offense. And the ones who are stumbling, notice what it says, they stumble against the word. And how does that stumbling against the word manifest itself? Well, here there's no manuscript difference. It manifests itself through disobedience. They are simply disobedient to that one. Why? Because this one, that stone, that living stone, has one objective. To bring a righteous change into one's life. A kingdom change. I always speak about how there's an inherent condition, relationship between the kingdom and righteousness. We all know the verse, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. So if you are committed to righteousness, you love Messiah. If you are committed to your concept of right and wrong, then you're going to be this one who loathes Messiah. And you are going to disobey. And then look at the end of verse 8. Now, I would encourage you, just sometime on your tablet, your phone, just put this scripture in. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse, verse 8. And look at the number of translations that you get if you go, for example, to Bible Hub. And see how many translate it. And they speak about how it is God's destiny to set people against the stone. You look, many translate it, understand it in this way. That is a poor rendering. Why? 
Well, when you pay attention to all the grammatical clues, we see something. If you look at this last verse, it says, to, and we have a definite article. Boy, definite articles are important in the Bible. You learn so much about rightly to divide the word of God through definite articles. You may be saying, some of you, what's a definite article? It's the word the. That's all. The. It speaks about something that is specific. In the Greek language, it's often used to point out the subject. What the author is referring to. Now, we have in English one word for the. Doesn't matter what you're wanting to make specific, what you're referring to. You just use the word the. How many forms of the are there in New Testament Greek? Know the answer? 24. You can be really specific. Because all nouns, we don't have this in English. All nouns can be masculine or feminine or genderless, neuter. So when you look at the definite article, it can pinpoint the subject. And when you look here, it is not saying that God has, has caused one, that this is a divine destiny that someone is set against God's will, his purpose, his Messiah. But it says just the opposite. God has set this one unto him. That's God's desire. That we would be set not against, but with. He has set us alongside, but the problem is because we misuse that freedom, that liberty, that choice that God gives us, they choose to disobey. God's not the author of disobedience. Realize that. It is not necessary for God to say, I predestined this one against me. God would never say that. In fact, and I make mention of this frequently, when you ever look at the term for predestination in the scripture, you find that it only is relevant for those who are in Messiah. Because you never see predestination speaking about whom God predetermines will be in heaven and whom he predetermines won't. That is a foreign concept. That is made by a man and believed in those who are in darkness. What we see here is that predestination scripturally is only relevant for those who are in Messiah. And what has been predestined, this is the blessing. Those who are in Messiah are predestined. God has promised. God sees down into history or into the future. And that we are predestined to be like Messiah. That's what he spoke of earlier. When he is edifying that he's building us up, to be like that stone, that we are going to be like him one day. It's his work. And then look at verse 9. But for those who are believers, he says, you are a chosen generation, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. A people for, and I love this word, his possession. Now, when I hear that, 
that through this stone that we receive by faith, God says, I am going to make you, and he says all these things, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a kingdom priesthood, a holy nation, and a people of his possession. Now, the scripture, and we all know the concept that the best way to interpret the scripture is with other scripture. And I think of John chapter 10, what a wonderful passage where Messiah is speaking and he says that we are in the hand of the Father, but then he says we are in the hand of the Son. You know what that means? That God has a double grip upon us. And he says no one, if he says no one, it's all-inclusive. There's going to be no violation of this. No one is going to pluck us out. We're not going to be snatched away by the enemy because we are his possession. He is holding on to us. What a wonderful promise. God will never let go. Now, we can't say that about one another. We see people, they get their feelings hurt. They, they bail from a relationship. They have a dysfunctional family. Parents don't talk to children. Siblings don't talk to one another. All the time, and I believe it's happening more and more. But in the family of God, that is unheard of. Unheard of. God says, this is my daughter. This is my son. I never will let go of him. That's the power of a covenantal relationship. And the same way that Messiah holds all this world together, that same force, that same power, which is limitless, it also holds us eternally in a covenant with him. And that produces humility, being in all of God's love, and it's a motivation to serve him. It's an outcome of knowing God's great and abiding love for his people. Not because we're lovable, but because God has chosen in Messiah, in Messiah. So we read here that we are this royal priesthood, that chosen nation, that holy people for his possession. Why? Look at the end of verse 9. So that, and then the next phrase is in the plural. So that the excellent things, I like that word excellent. Now, you may not know it, but in Hebrew, the word for excellent and the word for Zion, same word. Zion is where we're going to experience the excellency of God. What did we learn? Zion is a kingdom word. All of God's excellent things that he has for his people are there in the kingdom waiting for us. And when you're not kingdom-minded, when you're not motivated for kingdom purposes, what you're saying to God, whether you know it or not, is God, all those promises that you've made, that your son died for me to receive, I'm not really interested in them. They're not motivating me. They're not changing me. Nothing in regard to what you have for me, these rewards, these, these blessings. They're not of interest. How insulting. How wrong it is to not think in the proper way. So all of what God's doing 
is so that the excellencies that we can proclaim. And we do so because he has called you out of darkness into, and we signed a few minutes ago, into his marvelous light. And all that's come about because of God. How do I know that? Look at verse 10. He speaks about when you are not a people, meaning you're not my people. But he says, those who are not my people, but now, through that work of the stone, that living stone, you become a people of God. That is the grammatical condition is that of possession, the genitive. We become a people that God possesses. And once God gets his hand around us, he never will let go. Now, what if we're not nice? What if we're not faithful? You know what God says? He says, those who had not received mercy, but now, and that's in the emphatic, but now, having received mercy. See, whenever we're not doing what we ought to, God does not destroy his children. He may discipline us. But from my experience, much more than discipline, God shows mercy. Mercy can bring about a great change in people. God's mercy or, hear this, or when you display to others mercy. Now, it may not have an immediate reaction. But when you, having received God's mercy, display mercy to others, it is going to have an amazing outcome. It may take time. It may require that abundant mercy. How much God was willing to do for us to receive mercy? The cross answers that question. So he says, those who weren't my people, we become his people because we did not have mercy, but now we do. Verse 11. Why are we recipients of God's mercy? Because we are beloved by him. Not because we deserve it. Not because he looks at us and say, I love them. It's because of who he is. He chooses. Why? Here's the key. Covenant. You have no hope of experiencing God's love until you enter into a covenantal relationship with him. That's what he talked about. No people, no mercy. My people, the people of God, I've entered into a covenant and I become a recipient of his mercy. So he says, beloved ones, speaking to the body of believers, I encourage you as strangers and sojourners where the implication is in this life, in this body. Me being in this body is not who I am. It's a shell. It does not speak of who I am and what I will be in the kingdom of God. We're on a journey. We're strangers, aliens, sojourners. And he tells us here, because this is not our home. This is not 
where we are ultimately to be. He says, because of that, you belong to a kingdom. Therefore, he says, abstain. That's that same concept, say no to. Learn how to say no. No is a wonderful word. I can tell you in my life, I really don't get in trouble for saying no. We get in trouble when we say yes. There's so much temptation in this world. Learn how to say no. And each time you say no, you will grow spiritually. So we read, but loved ones, I encourage you, meaning recognize you don't belong here. You're just sojourning here. Therefore, abstain from fleshly desires. Why? Because these fleshly desires, what does that mean, fleshly desires? Your feelings and emotions. Spiritually speaking, we need to take our feelings and emotions and set them aside. The battleground of the enemy is on your feelings. When you are in bondage to making decisions based upon how you feel rather than truth, you are right where the enemy wants you to be. And he will defeat you every time. You will be spiritually frustrated. You will have a life that does not reflect the glory of God. And you will not have access to God's provision. Satan knows this. He knows how to fight spiritually. Do you? He says, look again, verse 11. Abstain from fleshly desires, which war, it's the word for soldiers fighting a battle, which war against the soul. Now, we learned last night that this soul, he spoke of the salvation of the soul, speaking about the very essence of the person. Satan, if you're a believer, Satan's not finished with you. In fact, it's when you're not a believer that Satan kind of just leaves you alone because you are worthless to God. He loves you, but you're not effective in his purposes, in his will. Why? You're in darkness. That's where Satan wants you to be. But when we become a believer, that puts a bullseye upon us from Satan's perspective. We become a battleground unto him. And therefore it says, these fleshly desires, they war against the very essence. Satan does not want us to become whom God died through his son, died for us to become. And all too often, the enemy has too much success. That God sees us, God's plan for our life is for us to be so different than we are now. That we are hindering God's work of edification in our life. Now, some people would hear that theologians say that's ridiculous. I mean, I can hinder God's work, a man can hinder. It's because God has spiritual laws. It says nothing in regard to us being more powerful that we can hinder God. That's foolishness, I agree. But God has laws. And when we violate those laws, there's consequences. God says, my desire is to work, to edify you, to build you up mightily into my servant. But when we violate truth, 
God stops the work. He begins to work in a different regard, to bring conviction, to lead to repentance. But we're sometimes all so stubborn. So he says, look again, that war against the soul, verse 12, our last verse. It begins with something that four, five times thus far in this epistle, this word has appeared. It begins, this verse begins, verse 12, your conduct, your behavior. Over and over, Peter's emphasizing that. See, faith is called to change our behavior. So he says, your behavior among the nations. Now, here, that term for nations is the same word for Gentiles. Oftentimes, in the New Testament, when that word Gentile appears, the emphasis is not Jew or Gentile. It's covenant or no covenant. He's speaking here about those who have no covenant relationship with God. They may not know about it. They may have rejected it. They're uninterested. But in the end, there's no covenant at that time. This is a field of opportunity. This is an opportunity for ministry. And therefore, he says, don't be carnal, fleshly minded, but be my servants. Let that be manifested. Look again at verse 12. In your conduct, your behavior, among the nations, and that conduct, it literally says that your conduct has, and it's just one word, good. Now, it's hard to translate it that way into English, but he wants us to live in a way that our conduct is good. We learn that the word evil is what? Against God's will. And the word good means according to God's will. Nothing is really going to happen in empowering you that you are going to manifest that you are a new creation in Messiah until you understand the simple truth, that God wants to change your behavior and make it a righteous behavior. So we need to have that, that testimony among the non-believers, that it has good, that it's according to God's will. Now, one of our main themes is there is an enemy. We are going to be in opposition. We are going to be persecuted. But we need to have, in the midst of persecution, a godly testimony. And this is what Peter concludes this verse with. When he says, in order that when they speak against you and call you as evildoers, they call you that. But from your good deeds, when they observe it, there's a change. When they see your good deeds, when they observe it, they are forced what? They are forced to acknowledge, to glorify God when? In the day of some Bibles will say visitation. I'm going to conclude this, this first session today with just that word. Translated perhaps in many Bibles, visitation. 
Now, this is the day. It's the same word. If we look at the Hebrew counterpart, it's the same word that is used in modern Hebrew for making a deposit into a bank account, placing something in a location. So the day of visitation is when God deposits his presence in this world in a very different way. This is the outcome ultimately of redemption. Now, yes, we know theologically where is God located? Every place. But in the kingdom reality, God's presence is going to be very different. Because just like we talked about those seraphim last night, what did they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. That's true. But there's going to be a change. There's coming a time that there's going to be a kingdom change. And what is that? When the whole world, that is all of God's creation, is full of his glory. We don't see God's glory in a mighty way in this world that we're living in. Read the book of Zechariah chapter 14. There's coming a change. When that kingdom is established, the thing that characterizes it is that God's name is one. He's one with his people. And what's going to be their light? All commentators understand this light, this unique light, to be a reference to God's glory. This is what the kingdom is. And what he's telling us here, look at the end of verse 12. And that day of visitation, that day of visitation is a day of revelation. All creation is going to step into the light. Now, some are going to be doing it from the outside. But they're going to see God revealing truth. And they're going to have to confess. That's good. That's righteous. That's, that's what's pleasing to God. In the same way, I'll close with this. In the same way at that time, and, and Paul speaks of this in Philippians chapter 2, when he says, there's a day coming when every knee is going to bow, every tongue's going to confess to the glory of God. That's what we're speaking about, God's glory being manifest and acknowledge that Messiah Yeshua, that Jesus Christ, he is Lord. That's going to happen. They're going to be compelled to acknowledge truth. But here's the problem. For the vast majority of human beings, it's going to be too late. Because if you only bow your knee and confess that after death, it's true. You're going to know this is fact, but it will have no benefit for you. It's only when you do it in this life, before death. And the sooner you do it, it's going to save you from so much hardship, so much shame, so much misfortune. He said, what you're talking about, persecution and suffering, very, very different. We're going to see that when we suffer for righteousness, what does the scripture say? Cat it all for joy. When we suffer for our faith, the word of God says we'll see it. 
He says, consider yourself blessed ones. But when we suffer because of disobedience, when we experience God's consuming judgment that's without end, that's entirely different suffering. God is able in the midst of persecution, God will sustain us. We will come to know, experience God ever so better through suffering. That's why Paul says, he says, the fellowship of Christ through his suffering. What Paul was suffering for his faith, he says this, two things. This is when I experience Christ's presence in my life. And you know what else he received? What's the second thing? Power. That power to endure. You don't need to be concerned if you're praying. God, I want to be faithful in the midst of these last days. I want to endure whatever for your sake. You don't have to be concerned. Will I be able to? God is all sufficient. He will give us the power. He will give us the strength to overcome. That's one of the primary messages to those seven congregations in Revelation 2 and 3. You hear what the Spirit is saying, and you're going to hear power, a power to overcome, a power to have a God-pleasing testimony. That's what this conference is about. We are called to be overcomers, and through him, not through us, through him, we will overcome. But the question we have to ask, do we really want that? Is that our heart's desire? Are we praying for that? Because if you're not, then that power, that, that testimony, that ability to endure is not going to be upon us. Let's pray. Help support God's people by purchasing items made by them. Merchandise with a meaning. Products with a purpose. HolyLandMarketplace.com For more teachings, visit, support, or donate at TorahClass.com Join with us in worship and enjoy God's Word at Seat of Abraham Fellowship.